Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Careful the things you say, children will listen. Careful the things you do, children will sing and learn. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode Children Will Listen. Careful before you say, Listen to me. Children will listen. I recently had the pleasure of chatting with author Stacy Wolf about her most recent book, Beyond Broadway, The Pleasure and Promise of Musical Theater Across America. Stacy is a professor of theater at Princeton University and the director of their new program in music theater. She is also a leading scholar of musical theater, and her other acclaimed books include Changed for Good, A Feminist History of the Broadway Musical, A Problem Like Maria, Gender and Sexuality in the American Musical, and she also co-edited the Oxford Handbook of the American Musical. As the title suggests, in her new book, Stacey Wolf takes us beyond Broadway on a cross-country journey that stretches from Maine to California. Along the way, she meets and interviews more than 200 people and discovers that the Broadway musical is alive and thriving in grade schools, middle schools, high schools, summer camps, festivals, and community theaters in cities and towns large and small across America. And perhaps most importantly, she illuminates why the interaction and relationship between the worlds of professional and amateur musical theater is so crucial to the health and future of the Broadway musical. Well, welcome, Stacy, to Broadway Nation. I'm thrilled to have you here to talk about your book, Beyond Broadway, which actually, it occurred to me as I was reading it, it could have been called Broadway Nation in a way. That is so true. It could have been called Broadway Nation. And in fact, when I first was introduced to your wonderful podcast, I was a little bit nervous that you had scooped me, although that would have been quite wonderful. But I think your tagline of your podcast is so much in conversation with my book, except you're talking about professional musical theater and Broadway, and I'm talking about the other stuff, the amateur stuff. 
And I also think where the tagline ties in is I talk about how Broadway musicals change the world. And I think your book gets really to the heart of that. Every day we are seeing the effects of how Broadway musicals are changing the world. And you document that in your book. Yes. And how the Broadway musicals that happen in amateur venues and across the country also influence Broadway. So there's an ecosystem, there's a feeding system, there's a give and take between New York and the rest of the country. How did you start this incredible cross-country journey to research this book? And what was the impetus behind this? The impetus was actually a production of Guys and Dolls that I saw in rural Maryland in 2010. If I try to go back and say, when did the seed of this idea happen? Well, the actual seed of this idea happened when I was a child and experienced all the different musical theater venues that I write about in the book, summer camp, community theater, high school musicals, and dinner theater. And I had done all of that as a kid seen it and performed in those shows and had never been to New York until I was a teenager. So I lived all the chapters of this book or many of the chapters of this book in some way. But how the actual book started was I went to see a production of Guys and Dolls in rural Maryland. And when I got there, it was like the hugest celebration you could have imagined. The parking lot was full. Everyone was all dressed up. Everyone had bouquets of flowers and gifts and balloons that they had to keep on the side while the show was going on. The production values were very high. They had elaborate sets. They had elaborate costumes. The kids were phenomenal. The cast was so strong. There was an orchestra of something like 100 kids. And then after it was over and all of the backstage workers came out, there were another 100 kids. So there were probably between 250 and 300 children involved in this high school production in a farm, in a field in Maryland. And I could not understand why in this moment, and that was 2010, so things were a little bit slower and not quite as screen obsessed as we are now. But why did these kids want to be in this show? Why did these kids want to work on this show? Why did all these people come and see this show? Why was it such a huge community event? It seems so anachronistic. It seems so slow. It seems so old-fashioned. It seems so out of step with our time. Not to mention that the show was Guys and Dolls, but that's a different topic. But that people would come together to do this kind of crazy old-fashioned thing. So that made me think about how alive and well musical theater is across the country. And it became very obvious to me just driving through the small New Jersey town where I live to see little signs up about the elementary school production of this and the high school production of this and the summer camp musical of this. And suddenly the light bulb went off and I thought, wow, this thing that I've been writing about for many years professionally is thriving across the country. And not only that, it is feeding what's happening in New York. What took you to that show to begin with? How did you end up there at Guys and Dolls? My mother's boyfriend's granddaughter was in the show. She played Adelaide. And I had gone to Baltimore where my mom lives to be with her. And she was going to see this kid in Guys and Dolls. And I'm a musical theater person. So I thought, why not? But I don't have children. So I had not been to a bunch of high school musicals. That wasn't my world at all. So I was really an outsider coming in. Probably if I had children, I would not have been as surprised and delighted as I was. I probably would have been driving my kids to rehearsal all the time and been really <laughs> sick of it. But I thought it was really extraordinary. And it launched this road trip across America. 
Seeing this high school production of Guys and Dolls got Stacy thinking about the relationship between Broadway and amateur musical theater and the reasons why that relationship might be important. And she ultimately ended up with three main ideas about how they interact. So the first is that local musicals and amateur musicals feed Broadway in terms of artists. So no one I know who works in the professional theater did not start in a high school musical, a community theater production, a summer camp show. Everyone starts that way. Almost everyone begins that way. So all of these people feed what becomes a professional theater. So that's a really important reason. Another really important reason is that people go to see Broadway shows from across the country. The tourists who go to New York and go to Broadway because they know specific shows from seeing them at home or performing in them at home, or they know the genre. They know the form of musical theater. They become musical theater fans from their home life, and then they want to see the professional production. And third, because of licensing, because of the dynamics between the licensing companies that produce and publish and distribute the materials and give permission or sell permission to do a show and all of these local productions. And one of the things that surprised me when I started doing my research was that even though 80% of musicals fail on Broadway, many of them make back their capital through amateur and local productions. Increasingly, the local and the amateur shows, and especially the children's market, has become incredibly lucrative and important for the licensors. It's not just that the licensors are profit-seeking capitalists who want to make more money, but they support musical theater not only through the distribution of scripts and scores and the money that goes back to the artists, crucially through the paying of these licenses, but also through all of these ancillary materials and extra the extra stuff that they create that enable musicals across the country. This unique inside view of the Broadway musical licensing houses that Stacy provides in her book is a subject that most people have never even thought about. People in the business, of course, know all about them. When I was producing for the Fifth Avenue Theater, I was interacting with those licensing houses on a weekly basis because professional theaters deal with these same companies. And these companies include Music Theater International, which we refer to here as MTI, Samuel French, Tams Whitmark, and the Rodgers and Hammerstein organization, all of which were originally formed by the authors of the Broadway musicals themselves. MTI was in fact founded in 1952 by the composer Frank Lesser and orchestrator Don Walker. That's really what these companies are, even though most of them have now been bought up by big corporations, they're still basically collections of artists that were formed so those writers could make their shows available and then make sure they were getting paid when their work was being done. And as Stacy mentioned, much of the money that these companies bring in is distributed right back to the creators of the shows. Yes, absolutely. And I think before I started working on this book, I understood the licensors primarily as gatekeepers, that you have too many girls. And so can you cross gender cast this show? Or can you transpose the music in this show? Or someone in a high school is offended by the language. So can you cut this language and get permission to do the show in general, and then get permission to do other things that you actually seldom get permission to do? I only understood them as the bad people. But (laughs) when I visited the offices of MTI, and as I got to know a lot of people who worked at MTI in many different offices, 
I was impressed and I don't know why I was surprised. I should not have been surprised, but I was really impressed by how much their goal is to enable musical theater production. And yes, of course, for some money to ultimately trickle back to the artists, but more than that, to increase the number of musicals that can get produced across the country. This is why their amateur offices and all the other kinds of ancillary materials that they create the scenic projection backdrops and all of the various ways that they can work out music and the files that you can rent temporarily so that if you teach in a high school and you have a phenomenal marching band and so you have brass and woodwinds, but you don't have any strings, you can just rent the strings and you can actually have live music and support the kids playing, which is such an important and amazing thing for them to do. And it will sound like a full orchestra with the taped music. Not to mention the juniors, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But I was very surprised to see how the general feeling of MTI and Samuel French and the other licensors is so positive, helpful, and wanting to make musical theater happen however it can, wherever it can, in every little small town in the country. Everyone I met there was so thoughtful about what it takes to get people to do musicals who maybe have a lot of experience like you have, and also people who've had no experience. How do you do a play if you know nothing about it? That was actually another goal of the book. I was writing the book both for people who had done musical theater, hoping that they would see themselves in the pages of the book and be able to identify with all the characters who are all real people. But I was also hoping for people who have never been backstage or never made a show to understand some of the ways that this happens, some of the things that happen at auditions, some of the things that happen at a board meeting of a community theater, some of the things that happen at high schools to get a show up, some of the ways that they make money and open a window into the backstage of a lot of these both corporations and not-for-profit institutions that produce musicals. So this visit to MTI and eventually to Disney leads to two of the road trips that you take in your book, two of the major chapters of the book. It also starts with Stephen Sondheim and Into the Woods. You mentioned juniors a minute ago. How did these Broadway juniors come about and how did that lead to your road trips? When I visited MTI, I was so fortunate that I got to spend a couple of hours with Freddie Gershon, who at the time was the president and CEO of MTI. And now he is, I guess, president emeritus. I'm actually not sure of his exact title, but he was the person who put MTI on the map in a new and different way and started collaborating with Cameron McIntosh and hugely expanded the catalog at MTI around the world, actually, not only in terms of acquiring more products more shows, but also in terms of their global expansion. So Freddie tells this story, and I think it's true. I believe it's true. <laughs> Do you think it's true? I think, I think it's, it's probably, probably true. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It may have been showbizzed up a little bit, but yeah, that's okay. It may have yeah, been showbizzed okay. up, as, as he's <laughs> wont to do, but he does yeah. tell a great story, and the ending is really fascinating. So he tells a story about how in the mid-1990s, Stephen Sondheim and Arthur Lawrence came into his office, and they were fretting about the decline of musical theater in schools and they were really worried that no kids were going to know the musical theater repertoire anymore and people weren't going to be doing musicals anymore. And Freddie had an idea. He is full of ideas. And he said, let's make 
short versions of your shows. Let's take your shows, let's cut them down to an hour so they can be done in schools. Let's simplify the music and transpose whatever has to be done for young voices. And we'll have these Broadway junior shows. And then we can sell them to middle schools and elementary schools where they'll fit into a school day. And everyone in the world will be doing your shows. And actually, let's start with Into the Woods because the first act of Into the Woods ends with Happily Ever After. And that is perfect. I don't know if it happened on the spot, but Sondheim agreed and they created Into the Woods Jr. Once upon a time, I wish in a far off kingdom, more than anything, lived a young man, a sad young lad, I wish, and a childless baker, more than mine, I wish, with his wife, more than anything. More than the moon, I wish. The king is giving a festival. More than I life. wish. I wish to go to the festival. More than riches. I wish my cow would give us a milk. More than anything, I wish we had a child. I want a child. I wish. Then once Sondheim agreed, the story goes, and I'm certain that this part of it is exactly true. Once he agreed to have his shows shortened, then other composers and lyricists and librettists were willing to come on board and have their shows shortened. For Into the Woods, it was a relatively simple adaptation, at least in terms of the book, because it does end with Happily Ever After. At the same time, MTI was developing the technology to digitize scores and digitize scripts. So it was also getting easier to distribute material. It was getting easier to transpose music. It was just much easier to get this stuff out and practice it. The second show that they did after Into the Woods was Annie Jr., which made a lot of sense because it's 100 million orphans and some of the music already is in the correct vocal range for kids. And then after that, they did Fiddler on the Roof because they wanted to see if you could take an adult show and trim it down and make it work for elementary and middle school age kids. And indeed, it did work. A Fiddler on the Roof sounds crazy, no? But in our little village of Anatevka, he might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in a word. Tradition! And my friend, Robert Lee, who teaches in the musical theater writing program at NYU, and he worked for MTI at the time and was one of the people who was working on this digitizing the music project. He said that when they went to the production of Fiddler on the Roof Jr., it was so charming and moving to see these little kids playing these roles in Fiddler. And he said he just knew this was it. This was going to happen. So that really launched the juniors. Now there are many junior shows. And soon after that, every other licensing company started making junior shows from their catalogs. The other thing that I think is important about the juniors is that it did come from this great idea that Freddie had, and it has been the most lucrative part of their business and every other licensing company's business. But the industry of creating the juniors is an industry that is based on testing its product. So it wasn't just that they cut into the woods and sent it out there. 
every single show that goes out. And now there's a company called iTheatrics that is run by Tim McDonald, who used to work at MTI. And then at a certain point, Gershon said, you should make this happen your own. And he is an expert dramaturg expert at cutting musicals down to size at figuring out what is and isn't appropriate for little kids, figuring out what is the essence of this story, how can the story work. Everything is tested and retested and tested again to make sure it will work. So by the time the show gets released for schools, it's good to go. It will work. It will work perfectly. It will work beautifully. And Disney, of course, is also a huge player in the research and development field and making sure something will work. So I think it's important that it's not just tossed out there and let's see what happens. It has been tested at summer camps, elementary schools, middle schools with expert teachers, making sure it will all work in time. The other thing that happens with the juniors, and this I think is another really important piece of their puzzle, is they send out a show kit with each license score and script. And the show kit is essentially a teacher's guide to doing musical theater. And it starts from, here's how you audition. Here's how you cast. Here's some cheap ways of making costumes or building sets. Here's what you can do if you don't have any music at all. You can get music through computer files. So it's a way that if you are teaching in the fourth grade and you've never done theater in your life, you can get Charlie and the Chocolate Factory Jr. and get the show kit and your director's guide and it will teach you how to do a show. So in that way, not only has the catalog expanded opportunities for kids in schools and summer camps, but also the guide to the teachers and the adults who are guiding the process. Musicals have been produced in high schools forever. I can think you go back to the 1920s and there were high school productions of the musicals of the day or the musicals from 10 years earlier. But this has expanded this into grade schools and junior highs to an extent that was never happened before. Absolutely. Since they started the Broadway Junior Series in 1996, they estimate, and this was as of a few years ago when I finished my book, that 5 million students, 500,000 teachers, 23 million spectators, and more than 100,000 productions have taken place. That's 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 big business. And recently I read that something like 25% of the licensor's income is coming from elementary and middle schools now like Broadway itself, this is a combination of art and commerce. I'm sure you had to question that as you were writing your book. I did have to question it. Any of us who work in the academic musical theater industry, including you, such as you, are often challenged to think about the relationship between the art and the money. And those of us who write about and study and teach musical theater, I think have learned to be fairly unapologetic and unguilty about the fact that musical theater is a commercial art form. It's a part of American culture. It's there to make money. And it is also an important art form. And the people who work on musicals are artists. And as you show every single episode of your podcast, it's crucial to what America has become and continues to be. So when I explored the places where musical theater happens, and I would say especially for children, I also had to reconcile the commercial with the democratic aspirations. So one of the things that I did as part of the book was visit this event called the Junior Theater Festival. It takes place every year during MLK weekend in January. And now there's another junior theater festival that takes place on the West Coast. 
it's 3,000 middle school-aged kids and their teachers and directors from school theaters or community theaters, and they all show up for a big, huge convention to celebrate musical theater. It's really fascinating how it's organized. It's sponsored by Playbill, MTI, iTheatrics, and Disney. So all big corporations that are trying to make more musical theater happen. And all of the different schools and groups come with a 15-minute segment from a musical, from a junior show. So it has to be a Broadway junior show. So already they have bought the product to be able to participate in this at all. So they have to come with a 15-minute segment. They can't have costumes, no lights, no props, nothing. They perform their excerpt for two professional adjudicators. The Junior Theater Festival flies in people from New York or from the local theater to watch the kids do their thing and then talk to them afterwards, coach them, and give them some feedback which as you can imagine, is a very dramatic situation. They also have workshops for the kids and adults. They have a lot of performances of new musicals that they're about to release. They have Q&A with professional artists. The year I was there, they were talking with some of the actors who were then performing in Newsies, who actually flew to Atlanta for a couple of hours to do this talk back and go back. And then they have a huge awards event where virtually every group of the 90 groups, I think, end up being there. Every single one is recognized in some way. So there's this big recognition of the importance of musical theater, celebration of musical theater. Anyone can do it. It's amazing. And they're making a ton of money on this event. You can also see that there are big inequities between and among the groups. All the kids wear t-shirts that they get as part of their registration, but you can see that some of these kids have had to have bake sales and car washes to get enough money to come, and other groups are so polished and they go to performing arts schools. So there are definitely huge differences in access, but the festival tries to be very fair and democratic and open, and it does that, and it also makes a lot of money for these companies. So when I was there, I was experiencing this tension, although truth be told, when I was there, I thought it was completely awesome and fantastic. I loved it. But then when I got home and started talking about it and thinking about it, I realized that it was actually pretty complicated. What was the experience for the kids? I think the kids, for the most part, were having the time of their lives. And some of them experienced some rejection and disappointment if they were not selected to be in a particular musical number, or they also have auditions for the DVDs that accompany the show kits at the Junior Theater Festival. And so if kids would go to a big, huge kind of cattle call audition, and then if they didn't make the cut, that would be very disappointing. So I think like anyone who's involved in musical theater as a performer, and I won't say especially kids, but including kids, it's a combination of feeling included, elated, validated, and rejected. You can look at sports programs for kids and end up with all of those same conclusions, including from the profit side. Absolutely. There are so many analogies with sports, but one of the favorite thing, one of a girl told me, actually the girl who was at the Junior Theater Festival, and I shared a shuttle back to the airport with her and her family. And she was telling me that she had been very serious about soccer, then became more interested in musical theater. And she decided after going to the Junior Theater Festival that she was going to give up soccer because even though there were so many similarities between how she felt doing these two kinds of activities, soccer is always the same. 
And when you do mm -hmm. a musical, it's always different because you're doing a different show. I love that. Tradition. Without our traditions, our lives would be as shaky as as a feather on the roof. Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be back right after this short break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No Stacy not only met a lot of kids at the Junior Theater Festival, she also met many adults, including the dynamic teachers and the people who direct and produce kids' theater programs or volunteer to make them happen. And this led to her devoting an entire chapter of her book to a type of person she calls the backstage diva. She is a larger-than-life character, almost always a woman. She sometimes starts by teaching dance classes, but then eventually runs a musical theater program for kids. And sometimes it involves classes, but it always involves doing shows. And she is someone who can be found in any American town where musicals are produced. I grew up with a backstage diva who 
supported me and my development as a theater kid when I was a kid. So I knew from my own experience and from the experience of other people, I knew that there was this kind of person around. As I was putting together the book and like any book, it happens in fits and starts and you get a lead and you go down that road and you meet this person and you meet this person and you're kind of trying to figure out what this is all going to be. And so I was out in California to see a production of The Mountain Play. I was seeing The Sound of Music at The Mountain Play. Why was I in California? Because when I started this book, a friend of my brother's who lives in Mill Valley said to me, oh, you're writing a book about amateur musical theater. Do you know about The Mountain Play? And I had no idea what the mountain play was because most people who live outside of the San Francisco metropolitan area don't know what it is. Although everyone should because it is amazing. So he said, you have to come out here. They do a musical every year on the top of Mount Tamalpais. You have to come and see this. It's outside. It's 3,000 people. It's a natural amphitheater. They have to truck everything up. There are hundreds of people in it. It's a huge community event. You have to come. So I went out to California to see the mountain play and it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. You have to park way down at the bottom of the hill. You cannot drive your car up to Mount Tamalpais. It's a state park with very limited parking and you get on a school bus with all of these other people and their coolers and all different kinds of clothes because it might be cold weather up there. It might be hot weather up there. You have to have a hat. You have to have sunscreen. I did not have nearly enough supplies the first time I did this. And you go up the mountain and it's this twisty, tiny road with hairpin turns all the way up and bikers because it's California. So everyone's on their bikes and the school bus driver somehow is an expert at this. And there's all these people of all these different ages and you get to the top and there's a village at the top of the mountain. There's a little place where you buy your ticket and then a whole row of these stands that are for food, really good food because it's California like gourmet hot dogs and all kinds of other things that you can eat and various other community events and nature things. And you walk up this path that's five or 10 minute walk. Then you're at the top of this amphitheater and looking out over San Francisco Bay. It is the most amazing, breathtaking theater experience I've ever had. And a huge amphitheater that seats 3,500 people with these big stones carved out of the mountain. And then an 80-foot-wide proscenium, although it's not really a proscenium because there's no frame around it, but with the biggest backdrop of the sound of music you've ever seen in your life. Wow. So it was huge. It was incredible. And in the program for the sound of music, every single kid thanked Marilyn. I want to thank Marilyn. I want to thank Marilyn. So I started asking around, who is Marilyn? And everyone knew who Marilyn was because she was famous in this community. She is famous in this community. And she was Marilyn Izdebski, who ran a program for musical theater production from 1978. It wasn't until I did more research on the history of these kinds of programs that I learned that Maryland's was actually one of the very first programs that was a triple threat training enterprise because the triple threat got developed after a chorus line. And when a chorus line in 1975 revealed that triple threats could save you money if you didn't have (laughs) three different choruses of performers and that shows more and more were being created in the 70s that needed triple threat performers. And Marilyn had taught dance and then she started doing these shows. So I went to meet her and she was a fascinating person who was thoroughly dedicated to the well-being of children and the well-being of musical theater. And she did six shows a year from little kids all the way up through high school kids. 
It was a pay-to-play program. It is a pay-to-play program because she handed it down. So any parent who paid their kid would be in the show. It would just be a question of what part they would play. She had choruses of 60 to 100 kids. If a kid could not afford to pay, she would give them a scholarship because she herself came from a financially struggling background. So she would always say, if someone wants to dance, they will dance. So I watched her auditions. I watched a lot of rehearsals. She not only directed, choreographed, stage managed, designed the lights, oversaw the set, dealt with all the backstage stuff, oversaw 100 volunteers that helped her in some way. And she did this from 1978 until a few years ago and estimates that she worked with over 10,000 children. Wow. I was so amazed when I would watch her. And I spent many hours watching her talking to kids and dealing with kids that she was able to coax a painfully shy, trembling little girl to sing a few notes alone. She could do that as easily as she could challenge and push an experienced high schooler to go deeper in their emotions or to get their dance sharper or to hit a note more clearly. And I also watched her really change her mood and her tone very frequently. She would be hard-nosed and banging on her coffee cup and insisting that the kids get everything perfectly right. And then she could soften and hug a child who was crying or disappointed or upset about something. And so she just has this incredible emotional connectedness to kids. I had someone like that in my life, the male version of her, who I did a lot of shows with as a kid. I did lots of theater. I also went to dancing school. But looking back, I think about how that person inspired me to love musical theater. And I'm sure that if I went back and saw the work that we did, I would think it was pretty terrible. But that wasn't what was important. What was important was that inspiration to love what we were doing and to love the form and to love the idea of a Broadway musical. Absolutely. The woman who was the backstage diva of my childhood is the reason that I am a musical theater professor today. I can draw a straight line between the love that she instilled in me for the form and where I am today. I would love to tell one more story about Marilyn. Please do. Um, So her goal as a director was to get as many kids on stage for as much time as possible. And she is an expert at doing this. I saw a couple of shows that she did where there were literally 100 children on stage tap dancing with boas and ribbons. And the costumes were always amazing. They were just every, well, my little girl fantasy of wearing cool clothes and cool skirts that spin around and colored tap shoes and things. But she did a production of Gypsy that, to me, in some ways, epitomized her desire and ability to get a lot of kids on stage. So as we recall, the beginning of Gypsy is very quiet. It's a book scene. And Uncle Jocko is auditioning the kids for his terrible show. And Mama Rose comes barreling down the aisle. So there's an overture to the show. And then the book scene starts. That's Gypsy. But in Marilyn's version, she staged the overture. So with each new segment of song in the overture, more kids came on stage. (laughs) 
to tap dance or do something kind of ballet or do some sort of little pantomime. And then in the middle of that, she interpolated some songs from the 20s and it became this elaborate 10 minute number of this expanded overture before the musical started. But every single child was on stage and every parent or family member or friend got to see their kid on stage. And then the show started and it was the scene with Uncle Jocko and Mama Rose coming down the aisle and it went on from there. And I thought it was brilliant. So she put Uncle Jocko's talent show on stage right before we were introduced to Uncle Jocko in a way. <laughs> That's right. She did that. Absolutely. I think it was probably Uncle Jocko meets Florence Ziegfeld <laughs> because it, the scale was just unbelievable. So let's continue with the kids programs that you experienced. Let's talk about the summer camps first, because I think that's another world that is mostly unknown, certainly was virtually unknown to me. I went to summer camp as a kid, but I did not go to a summer camp like the ones I visited. I decided that I wanted to visit these girls' Jewish summer camps in Maine. I thought that was interesting. You didn't go to the performing arts summer camps, which, of course, there are some of those are quite famous and well-known. This is a whole different world of summer camp. I'm glad, David, actually, that you raised that point, because as I was working on the book and researching the book, like with any book project, there are so many decisions that you make along the way about what you're going to include and what you're going to exclude. And I decided very early that I was not going to write about high schools or summer camps that trained young performers. I do talk a little bit in the chapter about the juniors about Stage Door Manor because Stage Door Manor was where they actually tested the Into the Woods junior. But I really wanted to write about places where musicals were a part of the fabric of the institution, as in a regular public high school or a summer camp, or that the institution was created for the purpose of musical theater, not professional training programs, and not French Woods or Stage Door Manor or any of the fancy and really important training grounds for kids. So I visited a bunch of girls' Jewish summer camps in Maine. So these are not religious summer camps, and they're not affiliated with any kind of Jewish sect or organization. They were started by Jewish women educators in the early 20th century, which was the boom of summer camps all across America as middle-class people and also working-class people were trying to get their children out of the cities because of the fears of polio. Actually, an interesting analogy to our moment, although hardly get kids out of the city fixes COVID. So these women taught in private schools in New York, and they bought some property in Maine. At the time, there were also many Christian summer camps. There were non-denominational summer camps. There were Marxist summer camps. And there were summer camps for boys. Stephen Sondheim went to one of these camps. Adolph Green went to one of these camps. Leonard Bernstein went to one of these camps. What's fascinating about the summer camps is that doing theater was a part of the summer camps from the beginning. So girls would learn archery and how to swim and how to sail and they would play tennis and they would ride horses and they would do theater. For the research for the book, I read a lot of manuals of summer camps from the early 20th century and all of them talk about the importance of the arts, the importance of arts and crafts and the importance of theater and music. 
So this was part of the early mission of summer camps. As the camps progressed through the 20th century, because so many of the campers who went also lived in the New York metropolitan area, they were experiencing or their parents were experiencing Broadway musicals. So in the mid 40s, they started doing musicals at these camps. By the time I got there, the bunk show, which the bunk is the group of girls who live together who are of the same age. The Bunk Show was completely 100% integrated into camp life. They would do a show once a week with a different age group. The counselors who were in charge of it would audition the show on Sunday. All the girls in the bunk would be cast or would work on the show backstage in some way. They would rehearse through the week. The girls wouldn't do any of their other activities except for swimming. And then Saturday night was a big, huge thing. They would have a special dinner and then all the girls would walk up to or down to or around to the barn where they would perform the show and they would be singing songs like they sing all the time and they would see the bunk show. And then the next week, a different bunk would do a show. What I found fascinating about it was that this activity of doing this show created such an intense community of the girls in their bunk. If they did not like each other when the week started, by the end of the week, they would completely despise each other. Although I also saw remarkable counselors who could get these girls together and get them on the same page and going in the same direction to do the show. But the fact that they would be there on Sunday thinking, how are we going to do this show in six days? And they did brought them so close together. And in terms of the larger project of camp, it enhanced and intensified their identities as girls, as Jewish girls, non-Orthodox Jewish girls, and most important, enhanced their investment in the camp. Girls would come to the camp year after year, generations of women. I met many girls whose mothers had gone to the summer camp, whose grandmothers had gone to the summer camp. And the bunk show was a huge part of this loyalty and what kept girls connected to the camp and kept them coming year after year. The other piece of the puzzle, which I thought was very important, was the acquisition of cultural capital. So these are girls who would come to summer camp, many of them with a fair amount of knowledge of Broadway musical theater, whether they went to shows or went to high schools that did shows. But over the course of the summer, they would perform in one show and they would see six other shows. And the theater counselor, who's typically a college student, would not repeat a show in that girl's entire time. And many of them would go to summer camp for six or seven or eight years. So over those years, they would learn more and more shows by being in them and seeing them. And this is how one gathers cultural capital in one's little life. By the time you're 14, you know 50 musicals. Although what she saw would not have been what she would have seen on Broadway because the shows did have to be cut to under an hour. This was before the juniors. Now many summer camps do license the juniors because that makes it quite easy. But before the mid-90s, the theater counselor had to cut the show and make it so that it actually could work as an evening activity at camp. So this is what they do after they have dinner on Saturday night. They go and see the show. And also it had to be appropriate for girls who were seven years old, who were the youngest campers. I had a great conversation with one of the directors at one of the camps who was telling me about his interview to get hired. He was a musical theater director. He was a college student. He was a performer. He could play the piano. He was really enormously talented and also wonderful with kids. 
he told me about how when he was interviewing for the job, they were telling him that he had to make the show age appropriate and he had to make the show under an hour. And they were telling him that they had done Gypsy a few years before. <laughs> gypsy comes back again. Maryland does Gypsy. They do Gypsy at summer camps. I did Gypsy and when I was a kid. So did, one of these programs. Who did you play? I was, I was one of the newsboys. Absolutely perfect. Yeah. Gypsy is actually a great, <laughs> it's a funny choice, but a great show in some ways. So he said to them, you did Gypsy. How did you do that? How did you make it age appropriate? And how did you cut it? And they said, oh, well, we just did the first act. And he said, okay. So the first act of Gypsy is not exactly like the first act of Into the Woods, but that was how they did it. And he had the job of cutting a lot of shows back. Again, one of the purposes of my book is to look at so many people who engage with musical theater on an everyday basis who are not seen as necessarily artistic or pedagogically heroic or doing all kinds of extraordinary things. But to me, this young man's labor to have to take seven shows and cut them down to size and make them appropriate for seven-year-olds year after year. I thought that was a remarkable dramaturgical feat. I often say that I think one of the most educational experiences a kid can have is doing a musical because it involves every aspect of learning, its history, its language. It is a complete education in each show that you do, unlike almost anything else, certainly different than sports, where it's just one thing you do. Absolutely. There are so many skills that are developed in doing musical theater. At many of the schools I visited, elementary schools especially, the teachers would talk about how in many communities doing the musical and working on the show is what kept kids coming to school, knowing that there was going to be a rehearsal later. And for elementary school kids to learn reading, to learn movement, to learn cooperation. Those are really valuable skills. And I think the junior shows, and especially the Disney Junior series, which is its own incredible capitalist, capitalist and enabling enterprise, has helped teach kids all the benefits that you're talking about of musical theater at a very young age. Stacey Wolf will take us back to high school and inside the world of community theater when we continue our conversation on the next episode of Broadway Nation. I do hope you'll join us. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help other like-minded people find Broadway Nation by rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This really does help spread the word about Broadway Nation. Special thanks to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.